Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode three of the Second Age of the Crusaders and the subject is the Fourth Crusade. I must admit this is my least favourite bit of the Crusades, at least in terms of my personal feelings, because it culminated in the sack of Constantinople, which must have been a truly unique place in the world at that time. It was the only city perfectly preserved from the ancient world with its hippodrome, aqueducts, basilicas and countless statues from ancient Greece and Rome, most of which the Crusaders either stole or destroyed. But aside from feeling sorry for the Byzantines, it was also one of the most interesting of the various Crusades because it combined so many of the contradictions that were inherent to the Crusades, in particular the curious mix of materialism and spirituality. Which one was the real driving force behind the Crusades? Well, this remains a matter of keen debate among historians. On the one hand, we certainly know that many crusaders journeyed east to make their fortunes, probably one of the most obvious and important examples being the Norman leader of the First Crusade, Count Bohemond, whose military genius almost single-handedly snatched victory for the First Crusade from the jaws of defeat. But most historians think that probably the majority of crusaders were genuinely driven by spiritual reasons, and the main one was almost certainly the Pope's promise of forgiveness for all sins. This was a major motivation because the fear of eternal damnation was a serious worry for most people in the Middle Ages. Men and women were equally concerned about this, as we know from the well-preserved letters that have survived between the Countess Adela of Normandy and her husband Stephen of Blois, who was an important, if somewhat reluctant, figure on the First Crusade. Not only do these provide a fascinating insight into a medieval marriage and the perhaps surprising equality between men and women at this time, at least amongst the aristocracy, but there's no doubt that it was Adela who pretty much forced her husband to go on crusade. Quite why, we don't know, but there's certainly a hint that it was necessary for his spiritual well-being, perhaps to atone for sins that were never explained in the letters. But to come back to the Fourth Crusade, as you will hear, the motivations for an attack on Byzantium were full of contradictions, and I think the material concerns certainly got the better of the spiritual ones, but I'll leave you to be the judge of that. Finally, of course, what of Byzantium? Well, when I said Byzantium was effectively destroyed by the Fourth Crusade, you'll probably say, hang on, that's not true, because didn't the Byzantine Empire survive until 1453, when the Turks stormed Constantinople? And you'd be right that 1453 is the official end of the Byzantine Empire, when Constantinople fell to the Turks. But I think Byzantium as an empire, and certainly as a major power, fell a long time before that. Indeed, in my view, the real end of Byzantium as a great power was at the Battle of Manticurt in 1071. And I think it would have been destroyed by the Turks in the 11th century were it not for the First Crusade, as we've discussed in earlier episodes. And although the First Crusade saved it, started to fall apart again after the next defeat by the Turks at the Battle of Myriokephalon in 1176. So that, as you will hear, by 1204, it was really just a city-state based on Constantinople with lands in Greece and some of modern-day Turkey. 
But nevertheless, of course, it wasn't completely finished and the Byzantines did recapture Constantinople in 1261 from the Crusaders. So Byzantium did manage to stagger on in a very reduced capacity. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In November 1199, Count Tybald of Champagne invited his friends and neighbours to a tournament at his castle of Ecri on the River Aisne. When the jousts were over, conversation amongst the lords turned to the need for a new crusade. It was a matter on which the Count felt strongly, for he was the nephew of Richard the Lionheart, and also the French king, Philip Augustus, and brother to Count Henry, who had reigned in Palestine. On his suggestion, an itinerant preacher, Fulk of Neuilly, was called in to talk to the guests. Fired by his eloquence, the whole company vowed to take the cross, and a messenger was sent to report the pious decision to the Pope. Innocent III had been on the papal throne for rather more than a year. He was passionately ambitious to establish the transcendental authority of the papacy, but at the same time he was prudent, far-sighted and clear-headed, a lawyer who liked a legal basis for his claims, and a politician who was ready to use whatever instrument lay nearest to his hand. He was troubled by the situation in the East. One of his first actions had been to express publicly his desire for a new crusade, and in 1199 he wrote to the Patriarch Imar of Jerusalem to asked for a detailed report on the Crusader kingdom. The kings of Jerusalem were his vassals, and his desire to support them was enhanced by the active policy of the German emperor Henry VI, whose granting of new crowns to the kingdoms of Cyprus and Armenia was an implicit challenge to papal authority in those areas. Experience had shown him that kings and emperors were not wholly desirable on crusading expeditions. The only crusade to be a complete success was, of course, the First Crusade, in which no crowned head had taken part. A crusade of barons, more or less homogenous in race would avoid the royal and national rivalries that had so greatly damaged the Second and Third Crusades. Such jealousies as arose would be petty and easily controlled by an able papal representative. Innocent therefore gave a warm welcome to the news from Champagne. The movement that Tybalt had launched not only would bring effective help to the Crusaders, but also could be used to strengthen the unity of Christendom under the papacy at Rome. The moment was well chosen for the papacy, as at the time of the First Crusade, there was no emperor in the West in a position to interfere. Henry VI's death in September 1197 had relieved the church from a very real threat, as the son of Frederick Barbarossa and husband of the heiress of Sicily, whose inheritance was firmly in his hands by 1194, Henry was more formidable than any ruler since Charlemagne. He had a high sense 
sense of this office and almost succeeded in establishing it on a hereditary basis, his bestowal of crowns in the East and his demand of allegiance from the captive Richard the Lionheart showed that he saw himself as the king of kings. He made no secret of his hatred of Byzantium, the ancient empire whose traditions outrivaled his own, nor of his aim to carry on the Norman policy of building a Mediterranean dominion, which in itself involved the destruction of Byzantium. A crusade was an inevitable part of his policy. Throughout 1197, he laid his careful plans. The German expedition that landed that year at Acre was to be the forerunner of a greater army that he himself would have commanded. But Celestine III, a timorous, vacillating man, who was the Pope at the time, was embarrassed and made no attempt to dissuade him, though he advised him against launching an immediate attack against Constantinople, with whose emperor he was negotiating for church union. Had Henry not died suddenly at Messina at the age of 32, just as he was preparing his great armada to conquer the east, he might well have succeeded in making himself master of the whole of Christendom. Pope Celestine died a few months after the German emperor, and Innocent III therefore found himself on his accession without a powerful monarch as his rival. The widowed Empress Constance put her Sicilian kingdom and her little son Frederick into his care. In Germany, where the Sicilian-born prince was unknown, his uncle Henry's brother Philip of Swabia took over the family lands and claimed the empire and found that the enemies of the Hohenstaufen had only been temporarily cowed. The House of Wealth put up a rival candidate, Otto of Brunswick. Richard of England was killed in March 1199 and his brother John and nephew Arthur were disputing the inheritance, with King Philip of France actively taking part in the quarrel. With the kings of France and England so occupied, with Germany distracted by civil war and papal authority restored in southern Italy, Innocent could proceed in confidence to preach a new crusade. As a preliminary step, he opened negotiations with the Byzantine Emperor Alexius III over the union of the two churches. In France, the Pope's chief agent as preacher was the itinerant Fulk of Neuilly, who had long sought to inspire a crusade. He was famed for his fearlessness, and he toured France, persuading the country folk to follow their lords to the Holy War. In Germany, the sermons of Abbot Martin of Paris were almost equally inspiring, though there the nobles were too deeply involved in the civil war to pay much attention. But neither Fulk nor Martin aroused the same enthusiasm as the preachers of the first. First Crusade had. The recruitment was more orderly and in the main restricted to the dependence of barons who had taken the cross previously, and many of these barons were moved less by piety than by a wish to acquire new lands. Therefore, in the absence of a king to lead the crusade, Tybalt of Champagne was accepted as leader of the movement. With him were Baldwin the Ninth of Hainault, Count of Flanders, and his brother Henry and Louis, Count of Blois, 
Geoffrey III of Le Perche and Simon IV of Montfort and many lesser lords from northern France and the Low Countries. The Bishop of Autun announced his adhesion with a company of knights from Auvergne. In the Rhineland, the Bishop of Halberstadt took the cross with many local German barons. Their example was followed soon afterwards by various magnates in northern Italy, led by Boniface, Marquis of Montferrat, whose participation aroused in Pope Innocent his first misgiving about the whole venture, for the princes of Montferrat were the faithful friends and allies of the German Hohenstaufen family, who were his enemies. The expedition could not be organised very quickly. The first problem was to find ships to carry it to the east, for with the decline of Byzantium, the land route across the Balkans and Anatolia was no longer possible. But none of the crusaders had a fleet at their disposal. Next, then, was the question of general strategy. Richard the Lionheart had given his opinion when he left Palestine that Egypt was the vulnerable point in the Muslim empire. It was eventually decided that Egypt should be the Crusaders' objective. The year 1200 was spent in varied negotiations over which Innocent tried to keep some control. But in March 1201, Tybalt of Champagne died suddenly and the Crusade elected as leader in his place Boniface of Montferrat. It was a natural choice. The House of Montferrat had notable connections with the Crusading East, especially since Conrad of Montferrat had been the saviour of Tyre. But his appointment to command the Crusaders moved it away from Pope Innocent's control. Boniface came to France in August 1201 and met his chief colleagues at Soissons, where they ratified his leadership. From there, he went on to Germany to spend the winter months with his old friend Philip of Swabia. Now began a curious twist that would change the whole course of the crusade. For Philip of Swabia, who expected to become the German emperor, had met and fallen deeply in love with the daughter of the Byzantine emperor Isaac Angelus. Her name was Irene Angelus, and he had married her in Sicily. 1195. But Isaac Angelus was overthrown and blinded by his own brother, who became the Emperor Alexius III. However, Isaac's son, who was also called Alexius, escaped and went to join his sister, Irene, with Philip of Swabia. Philip received him well and introduced him to Boniface of Montferrat. The three of them discussed what to do. Alexius wished to reclaim his father's throne in Constantinople, and Philip was ready to help him in order to make the Byzantine Empire the client to his own Western Empire. Boniface had a crusading army at his disposal. Would it not be of advantage to the crusade if it paused on its way to enthrone a friendly emperor at Constantinople? Meanwhile, the Crusaders had been seeking transport for their sea voyage. Early in 1201, when the Count of Champagne was still alive, they opened negotiations with Venice and sent Geoffrey of Villardouin there to arrange terms. A treaty was signed between Geoffrey and the Venetians in April. In return for 85,000 silver marks, Geoffrey and the Venetians agreed to supply the Crusade by the 28th of June 1202 with transport and provisions for a year for four 4,500 knights and their horses, 9,000 esquires and 20,000 foot soldiers. In addition, the Republic would provide 50 galleys to accompany the crusade on condition that one half of its conquest should be given to Venice. As soon as the agreement was made, the crusaders were summoned to assemble at Venice, ready to sail to Egypt.
A few crusaders were suspicious of the treaty. The Bishop of Autun took his company direct from Marseille to Syria. Others under Reynald of Dompierre were impatient with the delay at Venice and made their own arrangements to sail to Acre. There was also some dissatisfaction amongst the humbler crusaders at the decision to attack Egypt. They had enlisted to rescue the Holy Land and couldn't understand the point of going anywhere else. Their discontent was encouraged quietly by the Venetians who had no intention of giving help for an attack on Egypt. Aladil was well aware of the advantages that trade with Europe brought to his dominions and his conquest of Egypt had been followed by the offer of valuable trading concessions to the Italian cities at the very moment when the Venetian government was bargaining with the Crusaders about the transport of their forces. Its ambassadors were in Cairo planning a trade agreement with the Sultan's Viceroy who signed a treaty with them in the spring of 1202 after special envoys sent by Aladil to Venice had been assured by the Doge that he would countenance no expedition against Egypt. It is uncertain whether the Crusaders understood the treachery of the Venetian diplomacy, but if any of them suspected that they were being duped, there was nothing to be done. Their treaty with Venice placed them entirely in Venetian power, for they could not raise the 85,000 marks that they had promised. By June 1202, the army was assembled, but as the money was not available, the Republic would not provide the ships. Encamped on the little island of San Nicolo de Lido, harassed by Venetian merchants with whom they had run up debts, threatened that their supplies would be entirely cut off unless they produced the money, the Crusaders were ready by September to accept any terms that Venice might offer. Meanwhile, Boniface, who joined the Crusaders that summer after an unsatisfactory visit to the Pope at Rome, was already Already prepared to work with the Venetians for some decades past, there had been a war between Venice and the King of Hungary for the control of Dalmatia, and the key city of Zara had recently passed into Hungarian possession. The Crusaders were now informed that the expedition could start out and the settlement of the debt be postponed if they would join in a campaign to recapture Zara. The Pope, hearing of the offer, sent at once to forbid its acceptance, but whatever they might feel about its morality, the Crusaders had no option but to comply with it. The arrangement had already been made behind the scenes between Boniface of Montferrat, who had few Christian scruples, and the Doge of Venice, Enrico Dandolo. Dandolo was now a very old man, but age had not quenched his energy or his ambition. Some 30 years before, he had been on an embassy to Constantinople, where he he'd been involved in a brawl and had partially lost his sight. His consequent bitterness towards the Byzantines was increased when, soon after his elevation to the Doge ship in 1193, he had some difficulty in securing from the Emperor Alexius III a renewal of the favourable trading terms given to Venice by the previous Emperor Isaac. He was therefore ready to discuss with Boniface schemes for an expedition against Constantinople, but for the moment the semblance of the crusade must be be maintained. As soon as the attack on Zara was approved, there was a solemn ceremony at St Mark's in Venice where the Doge and his leading councillors ostentatiously took the cross. The fleet then sailed from Venice on the 8th of November 1202 and arrived off Zara two days later. After a fierce attack, the city capitulated on the 15th and was thoroughly pillaged. Three days later, the Venetians and Crusaders came to blows while dividing the spoil, but peace was soon patched up. The Doge and Boniface then decided that it was too late in the year to venture to the east, so the expedition settled down for the winter at Zara, 
while its leaders planned their future operations. When news of the attack of Zara reached Rome, Pope Innocent was furious. It was intolerable that, in defiance of his orders, a crusade should have been used to attack the territory of a faithful son of the church. He, therefore, excommunicated the whole expedition. Then, realising that the crusaders themselves had been the victims of Venetian blackmail, he forgave them, but maintained the excommunication of the Venetians. But Dandolo was totally unconcerned about the excommunication, and worse was to follow, for through Boniface he was already in touch with Philip of Swabia. Early in 1203, a messenger came from Germany to Zara, from Philip to Boniface, with a definite offer from his Byzantine brother-in-law Alexius. If the crusade would proceed to Constantinople and place Alexius upon the Byzantine throne, then Alexius would guarantee to pay the crusaders the money that they still owed to the Venetians. He would also provide them with the necessary money and supplies for the conquest of Egypt and would add a contingent of 10,000 men from the Byzantine army. He would pay for the maintenance of 500 knights to remain in the Holy Land and he would ensure the submission of the Byzantine church to Rome. Boniface referred the matter to Dandolo, who was delighted. It meant that Venice would receive her money and at the same time would humble the Byzantines and would enlarge and strengthen her trading privileges throughout the Byzantine Empire. When the proposal was put before the Crusaders, there were a few dissenters, such as Reynald of Montmirail, who felt that they had taken the cross to fight against the Muslims and saw no justification for further delay. He immediately left and sailed on to Syria. Others protested but were silenced by Venetian bribes and of course the average crusader had been taught to believe that Byzantium had consistently been a traitor to Christendom throughout the Crusades. It would therefore be sensible to enforce its cooperation now. The pious men in the army were glad to help in a policy that would bring the treacherous Byzantines into the fold and the more worldly ones reflected on the riches of Constantinople and its prosperous provinces and looked forward to the prospects of loot. Some of the barons, including Boniface himself, may have looked further forward still and have calculated that lands on the shores of the Byzantine Aegean would be far more attractive than those that could be found in the stricken land of Syria. All the resentment that the West had long borne against Byzantium made it easy for Dandolo and Boniface to bring public opinion round to their support. The way was now open for an attack on Byzantium itself. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to leave any ratings or reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts, you'll be doing me a really massive favour. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about the sack of Constantinople.